Waves lap against rocky shores and seagulls squawk overhead in a typical scene along South Africa's Western Cape coast. What's less obvious, however, is the lucrative and violent criminal economy that haunts many vulnerable seaside villages. It costs the South African economy hundreds of millions of rand every year. The Western Cape's wild abalone stocks have been decimated, with poachers now targeting abalone farms. There has been a huge surge in violence in the abalone trade. Abalone, or Badalamun as it's locally known, is a variety of sea snail considered a delicacy in Asia. It's been driven to near extinction by massive levels of poaching in a transnational criminal network that sees local, regional and international players compete for profits. This is Africa and the Global Illicit Economy from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Lindy Mtongana. Today, we're discussing a new report from the Global Initiative that looks at the harms associated with the abalone trade and the radical steps that need to be taken if there is any hope of reversing some of the damage. A new report from the Global Initiative, Disrupting Abalone Harms, zooms in on the illegal abalone trade. Found only in South African waters, this particular protected species of highly valued sea snail is at the center of an international criminal market. I'm South African. I've spent my whole life in the country, and yet the only context in which I've ever encountered just the word abalone is in my work as a journalist, engaging with stories about arrests or seizures. I can't say for sure I've ever even seen abalone before, certainly never tasted it. And yet, poaching and the illegal trade has led to some very serious and very visible ecological and social harms. The report's co-author and thematic lead on environmental crime at the Global Initiative, Simone Haysom, explains the market. In China, abalone is a, a delicacy. It's a dish that you serve uh, at feasts during important cultural holidays like New Year. It's a high-status offering that signals wealth and abundance. And it's interesting because in, in, in South Africa, abalone is, is also eaten um, as it occurs locally, but it, it, there's never been high demand and it's never been considered uh, to be a delicacy. So it's very much a trade which is driven by uh, production in one area of the world and high demand in another. Why is South African abalone so special? Japanese abalone is premium abalone, but South African abalone is seen to be good quality and good size at a good price. Uh, and it ranks around second in the market. There's also an element of desire for wild-grown product. So illegally harvested abalone in South Africa is, is harvested from the wild, while there is a small legal industry that grows abalone through aquaculture. But as we see for a number of other environmental commodities, that, that wild-harvested element is, is something that's attractive uh, in the market. You mentioned there is a legal abalone industry. How then did the illegal trade evolve into this international criminal enterprise? 
in around the 90s, there were a number of very large shifts in South Africa's criminal economy that had to do with the process of democratization, the fact that the country ended its isolation from the world as it became a democracy, trade routes opened up. And that had numerous uh, enormous benefits for the country, but it did also was also accompanied by a, a burgeoning of illegal trade. And so we saw the drug trade at this time in South Africa begin. Many uh, different sorts of drugs that were not previously available enter the country, and uh, the criminal networks that were involved in those uh, begin to grow. It was also a shift that happened uh, with environmental commodities. So. As the drug trade began to grow, alongside the illegal trade and environmental commodities, did the two worlds begin to converge? Beginning in the 1990s, the criminal gangs in Cape Town, which had begun to become much more powerful because of the growth of the drug trade, began to move into Avalon. Preceding this point in time, the, the primary drug trade in South Africa had been for methacrylone, Quaaludes, uh, which uh, South Africans smoked as buttons, um, and which the gangs were involved in. And they were buying those drugs um, and the precursors to make them from, from Asian intermediaries. And there's always been speculation that there was a link between um, those trade relationships that led to the gangs then moving into controlling Abalone territory and also providing Abalone to, to uh, Asian criminal networks for, for trafficking internationally. Abalone travels a long distance from South Africa to Asia, passing through the hands of key actors along the way. At the level of the coastline, Abalone is harvested from the floor of the seabed in kelp forests. It's then dried and smuggled over the border to other southern African states, where there are no laws protecting abalone because it's not naturally occurring. From countries like Zimbabwe, Mozambique and Botswana, it's laundered into licit trade routes and is shipped primarily to Hong Kong, the hub of the global abalone trade, from where it enters East Asian consumer markets. What we're looking at is a highly vertically integrated trafficking chain with a lot of low-level participants who are the subject of most law enforcement. That's your poachers in coastal communities. Um, and then a, a small number of people uh, right at the top of the chain uh, who control a lot of the decisions of, of how abalone tra trafficking happens um, and are making the majority of the profits. It's quite similar in many ways to our classic perception of a, of a drug trafficking route. Abalone poaching is sustained by a lethal combination of demand emanating from Asia, which generates huge amounts of income for abalone syndicates, and vulnerabilities etched deeply into South African society. Rampant poverty, the world's highest levels of inequality, and a government increasingly unable to confront the illicit economy. Between 2000 and 2016, as much as a third of the dried abalone imported into Hong Kong from producing nations around the world was obtained from South Africa's illicit abalone fishery. It's estimated worth more than $890 million. The negative consequences of this lucrative industry have been profound, ranging from resource collapse to corruption, turf wars, and the erosion of state institutions. 
Simone, poaching has decimated populations of abalone in South Africa. What impact has this had on marine ecology? I think it's it's important to say right off the bat that in many respects, we don't know what the ecological harm of this huge decline in abalone uh, populations has been. And we don't know because it wasn't measured at the time. And now the resource is already so degraded, it's quite hard to know what role abalone once played in the kelp forest. However, we spoke to several marine scientists, both people who did or or had worked for the fisheries department, uh, as well as independent academics. Um, And there are a few things we do know. For one, we know that abalone used to be extremely abundant in the kelp forest, and it would once have played a very key role in the food web. It would have been predated upon by many of the animals that live in the kelp forest, uh, like octopus, rock lobster, starfish, and fish would have eaten juvenile abalone. Its population now is extremely low, much lower than it previously was, and that hasn't necessarily been linked to a crash at any of those other populations of animals. It's possible that abalone was replaced by another species, which feeds on the same food source, uh, which is algae and kelp, whose population then expanded, such as urchins, another mollusk. We've used in the report the concept of keystone species to explore this question. Keystone species is a concept that comes from ecosystem science, um, which holds that there are certain species which play such a vital role in food webs that uh, once they're removed from an ecosystem, there can be uh, cascading negative effects on the other species. It's our hypothesis that this didn't occur with abalone and that abalone wasn't a keystone species. What about the social harms linked to the illicit abalone trade? I think there are three key social harms that people need to understand about the effect of the illegal abalone market in South Africa. One is the criminalization of local communities. One is violence linked to the trade. And a third is corruption linked to the trade. There has been a law enforcement response um, for several decades trying to disable abalone trafficking networks and to frustrate uh, people's ability to, to, to take abalone out of the ocean. Under this enforcement uh, strategy, numerous uh, divers have been arrested and numerous uh, people involved in in local communities, both gang participants, but also the people that are hired by uh, criminal networks to perform menial tasks. That leads to cycles of criminalization in local communities, much like you would see in inner city drug markets where, you know, street corner pushers are arrested for selling small amounts of drugs, which then means that they have criminal records and are unable to perhaps find uh, legal employment afterwards or uh, undergo uh, sort of traumatizing experiences in prison, etc. Let's turn to the second social harm you mentioned, violence. How pervasive is it? A really key figure in this regard is a man called Ernie Lastig, uh, who was assassinated uh, last year. On Friday, another alleged Cape gang leader was killed. His car was showered with bullets in Boxburg in Gauteng. Residents of Horston, where Solomon lived, say their fishing village is in danger of becoming a battleground for power. And uh, he was based in a, in a town called Horston on the uh, South Africa's Overberg coast, which was a major hotspot of abalone poaching. And he moved in there several decades ago. 
in what uh, locals remember as being an extremely violent takeover or imposition of gang rule. Very brutal messages were sent to local families about what resisting uh, gang control of those towns would mean for them and their children. People were killed, essentially. Uh, And then for a long time, Ernie Lastich's Uh, And his gang, he was affiliated to the 28s, controlled the poaching trade or at least extorted from it with an iron fist. The fact that Ernie Lastich was himself uh, assassinated last year may be linked to something else that came out through our interviews, uh, which is that there has been a huge surge in violence in the abalone trade, which may indicate uh, increasing fragmentation uh, of the criminal networks involved um, and increasing competition. That's taken the form of assassinations. It's taken the form of uh, police informants being killed. It's taken the form of violent heists of trucks carrying abalone, including from the legal industry. Well, in other news, the Hawks have arrested 16 people in Khanspai in the Western Cape in the sting operation to clamp down on abalone poaching. Eight of them are officials from the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries. The suspects allegedly assisted poachers in the area. Lastly, I think that the corruption that's accompanied this criminal market has been one of the most devastating social harms. Um, We've seen abalone feed into broader processes, admittedly, but um, certainly in the regions where it's occurring, be a a major element in in police corruption. And uh, probably more devastatingly, the report details uh, severe effects on the fisheries department, which has, because it controls things like permits, it controls things like auctions for abalone, uh, confiscated abalone, Um, has been the subject of really, really high corruption pressures. Despite decades of anti-poaching efforts, illegal harvesting is currently at its highest ever levels, with record prices for abalone. There are few realistic prospects for bringing the trade under control. Faced with these facts, a radical shift to the current state response is needed. Abalone stocks are at a small fraction of their former abundance, and the ecological consequences this has caused are practically irreversible given the high levels of poaching that continue to occur. Yet the myriad social costs of this trade continue to accumulate. Gang murders, the rise of exploitative kingpins, corruption, drug abuse, and the criminalization of marginalized communities, among others. So, quite simply... What needs to be done? We talk about the abalone trade being entrenched, endemic, extremely serious, and having you know, devastating social and ecological harms at the same time. We say that the ecological key e- ecological thresholds have probably already been breached, and that if the status quo continues, several informed observers do believe that um, the species will reach commercial extinction uh, in any case. It's hard then to look at that situation, to look at the extreme corruption around the trade, as well as the poor prospects for an immediate turnaround in the institutions charged with dealing with it, and simply say, well, we should do some anti-corruption work and um, we should do some livelihoods work in these communities and 
uh, hope for the best, which are recommendations which have repeatedly been made in regard to abalone over the last few decades. The GI's abalone report calls for a radically different approach. Instead of treating abalone poaching as an environmental issue or as a law enforcement problem, it argues that it must be treated as one in which various harms need to be balanced against each other. According to the report, the best remaining option, while certainly controversial, is to abandon efforts to control illegal abalone harvesting, allowing the species to decline beyond levels that are viable for criminal enterprise. In the context of the recommendation, the controversial recommendation that we've made that the state should abandon efforts to police poaching, we're not saying that they should abandon efforts to provide a law enforcement function. Rather, we're saying that the state should be in the driving seat for a process of commercial extinction that is probably going to happen anyway, and proactively plan for it uh, in terms of mitigating the possibility that once abalone runs out, local networks will turn to other species or other types of crime uh, to compensate. And also, just as importantly, that resources that would have been spent on that low-level policing are redirected towards the types of criminal investigations that would follow the money of trafficking networks, that would target actors who have more key roles in moving the product across borders. We also posit that um, once the resource is depleted, there is more of an opportunity to disrupt those networks. Simone, are we not treading on dangerous territory and sending the wrong message? I mean, some might argue that if we're willing to let abalone become extinct, what's next? Rhino? I think this is a really important question. Um, I think there's no denying that conservation is is based on philosophical and, and, and political commitments to biodiversity, to the fact that species other than humans have a right to exist and, and that we should do our utmost to prevent the cause of their extinction being us, human, human beings. I would again say that, you know, for the abalone case, we are really saying in this case that key ecological thresholds have been passed and there's a process that's already underway. And what we're really trying to do is surface the trade-offs and surface the decisions that need to be made around that process. It's my belief that for all of these species, we're essentially living in a time of triage. Uh, we're, we're going through a period where there's enormous pressure on the natural world uh, for a number of reasons, one of them being the illegal wildlife trade. And there already are and there will increasingly be trade-offs in what we can spend resources on, on saving. I don't think that it necessarily means that uh, it will lead to cascading abandonment of other species, precisely because it's a decision that we advocate is made on balancing different factors. For rhino, I think there's still a lot to play for. And there are populations which still have uh, enough diagetic, genetic diversity to recover. That may not always be the case, um, but for the moment it is. And um, I do, however, think that there probably is value in, in looking at the full range of harms involved in the rhino trade and in the response um, that currently exists and asking if they could be weighted differently.
What about CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora? Wouldn't a CITES listing provide abalone greater protection as a species? As concerns abalone, I can definitely see a role for the CITES listing in that without having that level of international protection, countries outside of South Africa have no incentive or motivation to make sure that the trade is legal. Uh, and make sure that the supply chains have integrity. There's debate within the conservation community and within the counter-wildlife trade community about whether a CITES listing automatically leads to better conservation outcomes for species. And I think it's important to understand that that CITES was created to regulate trade. It was not designed to be a counter-wildlife enforcement tool. So there's also a bigger debate to be had about whether the international frameworks we have are adequate for the extreme severity of the consequences of of illegal wildlife trade that we're seeing and you know both the the ecological and social harms okay what about the demand side have there been any successful attempts at cooperation with china in anti-poaching efforts the light at the end of the, tr- the, the tunnel is the cooperation that was seen on ivory trafficking, where China had two key interventions. One was to pass domestic legislation uh, aimed at curbing demand within China. Um, China actually made ivory markets illegal, and many people think that that was uh, very important in in, uh, signaling social unacceptability and also in important ways um, enforcing lower demand in China. They also did cooperate with Southern and East African governments to arrest key figures involved in ivory trafficking. The question we need to ask is, is why was there that cooperation for that issue and, and not for others? And can we recreate the conditions that led to that cooperation? I think one thing that was really key is that China decided that the reputational risk of of ivory poaching was no longer worth it to to not act against those figures. And they also kept their involvement strictly along the lines of invited cooperation with the governments in the region and focused strictly on Chinese nationals. And there's perhaps something there that the South African government could advocate for um, in Abalone. The illicit Abalone trade has evolved into a highly dysfunctional situation. Harms linked to the trade have crossed vital ecological and institutional thresholds. Law enforcement is barely able to contain the damage and the human harms are ongoing and getting worse. The recommendations in this report may indeed be controversial, philosophically uncomfortable even. But what is also evident is that the more of the same approach isn't working and the status quo is unacceptable. A radical response may be our only hope.
That's it for this episode. I'd like to thank Simone Haysom for joining me today to discuss the Disrupting Abalone Harms report. You can find a link to the report in the summary to the show. You can also visit our website, globalinitiative.net, where you can find reports, policy briefs, podcasts, and more multimedia content on a range of topics related to organized crime. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. You've been listening to Africa and the Global Illicit Economy from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Lindim Tongana. Thanks for listening.